thank you all for coming. And uh, thank you to the African Studies Center for um, two things. One is uh, having suggested that the Department of Anthropology, uh, so-called School of Anthropology and Museum Ethnography, and the African Studies Center, we joined forces, uh, that was about eight months ago or a year ago, to uh, apply for uh, an application to invite Professor uh, Michael Jackson to Oxford. And, and, and we were so pleased to receive this uh, suggestion that, of course, we immediately said, well, thank you, absolutely, uh, you can count on us. And, and, and then, of course, as you can, as you can see, we were uh, successful, um, even if the Astor uh, 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 lectureship is quite a, a competitive um, endeavor. But I think that we had such a strong applicant that it would have uh, needed quite a strong justification to, to turn it down. Uh, so we were successful, and there we are now here at St. Anthony's, almost a year later, uh, welcoming <coughs> Professor Michael Jackson. So thank you for the African Studies Center uh, for this uh, initiative, and to Johnny Steinbeck in particular, who was the director at the time. But also thank you to the African Studies Center for the, <laughs> uh, I think, um, quite daunting honor that they have bestowed upon me by asking me to chair this session. Uh, and, and I really appreciate it. And I do it, I said yes, mostly because I happen to be the dean of this college. And it was one way to welcome people and to welcome Michael to the college as well. Otherwise, I'm sure that there are people in the African Studies Center who are as familiar as I am with uh, Michael Jackson's work and uh, as capable of uh, chairing the session as, as I am. But it is a great, great honor to, to do so. And I appreciate it. So uh, thank you to uh, St. Anthony's, to everybody, and to Professor Michael Jackson in particular. Uh, now, um, thank you all for coming. And before I forget, just uh, one announcement. Professor Michael Jackson is here to give two lectures uh, and other activities he's been doing with uh, some students during the week. But the two public lectures are today and tomorrow. So tomorrow, at a different time, at 3.30, we will meet here, as many uh, of you as, 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 as you may want, uh, to listen to another paper, which will be very different. So if, you know, if some people are not here today, tell them not to worry. Tomorrow it's, a, it's an independent paper, although uh, it will be related to the same uh, research that uh, Professor Jackson has been conducting over the last um, years. It's a fantastic honor for me to, to, to welcome Michael Jackson. And you know I'm sure that, uh, like um, many other people in London, I first heard uh, about uh, Michael Jackson through John Peel. Now, uh, this is, uh, of course, quite a funny statement, although nobody has picked it up, because there was a very famous DJ called uh, John Peel, and a very famous <laughs> professor of anthropology called John Peel. Now, you can put me in the box that you want, uh, but I first heard of uh, Michael Jackson through John Peel, who was my professor of uh, West African anthropology. And of course, at the time I was preparing my, my, my fieldwork in Guinea, a country in West Africa where I went in 1992. Now, in 1992, I met the director of culture uh, at, the, at the Ministry of Science in, in uh, Conakry, and he told me that he was a Kuranko. And I very immediately said, wow, you're a Kuranko. Do you know Michael Jackson? 
And he looked at me and said, yes. But, you know, okay. Uh, so I think that the director of culture of the Ministry of Science had not read the Michael Jackson, uh, which is uh, the person that we are talking about today and that we are welcoming here. Now, I mentioned the Kuranko because Michael, uh, if I may call uh, you Michael, uh, Michael uh, first um, started to be known among us anthropologists as an anthropologist of the Kuranko, one of these ethnicities or ethnic groups of uh, West Africa in Sierra Leone, but also in, in Guinea, where I met uh, several of them. And he did uh, his first book. Uh, I don't know how many books he has published in the last two days, uh, but um, of, <laughs> these are a few of those that he had published until two weeks ago. Uh, you can may have a look, a look at them. One of them is called Dick Kuranko, and it's here. And you could say, well, it's a classic ethnography. And in fact, it's, it's, it's very interesting that um, in the 1990s, uh, early 1990s or late 80, 1980s, people would say, well, Michael Jackson, he started you know, in such a positive way, doing this, this very classic structural functionalist uh, uh, books like the Kuranko, and now he's doing all these very weird postmodern uh, things. And, and there was a kind of, a, of a distancing I could, I could feel in among, among, among several anthropologists of the, of the more, say, British um, tradition. But in fact, if you look at the Kuranko, which was his thesis that he, uh, that he did in, uh, at Cambridge, if you read it carefully, knowing what we know now, 40 years later, about Michael Jackson as a person and as, 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 as a very imaginative author, we can see that a lot of his preoccupations are already in that first book. That it is a book that, yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, quite a classic product of a student of Jack Goody at Cambridge, but at the same time, it goes beyond that. And you know, not that many anthropologists cite Robert Musil in their structural functionalist uh, monographs. But Michael is indeed famous for having gone beyond the strictures of uh, the social science aspect of uh, social anthropology um, and has, in fact, uh, moved into very adventurous domains, domains in which his uh, philosophical imagination has uh, become, has fused with his ethnographic uh, uh, care for detail and for people's lives and, 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 and structures, but also subjectivities. So he's been going back to the Kuranko for more than 40 years now, and has produced uh, wonderful books that are updates to this uh, initial work of the Kuranko. One of my favorite, which we are actually reading with my students this week, is uh, Life Within Limits, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful book, a wonderful um, reflection. And as we were saying the other day in one lecture, it looks as though uh, uh, Michael Jackson has come to the realization that social anthropology has to move towards what classical philosophers used to call philosophical anthropology, the reflection of what humanity is about. What is that makes us human? What are our, our, our limits and our uh, and our conceptions of you know, being human, being in a space, being in a time, being sharing a world with others. These are preoccupations that philosophical anthropologists have had for many, many centuries, and that we have abandoned a little bit in, in, in contemporary anthropology and certainly also in contemporary uh, philosophy. And in fact, one of the books that he has written over the last few weeks is uh, called um, As White as the World Is, 
and it's a reassessment of philosophical anthropology. <coughs> so he's really showing us that there is a dialogue there between philosophical preoccupations and ethnographic detail. So his books um, explore many different aspects of uh, human existence, and they explore it in many different ways. Some of the books are essays, excursions, one of them, and in fact many of his essays are literally excursions uh, of path towards a clearing, which is a very West African expression, you know, you walk in the forest until you reach a clearing where you sit with your colleagues and have a chat, uh, where you see things in clarity, that's the title of one of his books. And, 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 and some other books are uh, books of poetry, he's written more than seven or eight books of uh, poetry, but also memoirs, personal memoirs, and also what he calls philosophical, philosophical novels, like Ahmad Ali, which is a, a novel about, more or less, you, young ethnographers in the making. And, and through these uh, different styles, Michael explores what it is that we are doing in this, in this world. One of his uh, essays uh, is about witchcraft confessions, one of his early essays which in fact became a classic uh, uh, text immediately that helped us understand uh, uh, why people in some contexts are so quickly prone to confess uh, witchcraft. Some other essays are about anxiety and method in social sciences, revisiting a very famous uh, book by the ethnopsychologist or ethnopsychiatrist uh, Georges Deveret, who was actually his mentor in Australia. Um, some other books explore, or some other articles or excursions, explore the symbolism of hands, you know, in, in Sierra Leone, in the war of Sierra Leone and of Liberia, as you may remember from, from, from the media. Uh, and I hope that if you remember it, it's only through the media. People cut hands of their enemies. Now, in why is it? What is the symbolism of human hands? Well, this is something that he has uh, explored with his passion for philosophy as well as ethnography. And I think that in, in his, in his, in his uh, many, many different essays, many, many different books, and you know, I've, got, I've got several of them here that I'll be very happy to um, uh, uh, let you have a look or uh, even borrow them if you, if, you, if you want. One of them is actually The Work of Art, which is um, a book uh, with the subtitle of Rethinking the Elementary Forms of Religious Life. And religion has always been one of the preoccupations of, 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 of Michael. Uh, one of his previous books, The Palm at the End of the Hand, uh, um, sorry, is that the correct idea? No, the end of the mind. The palm at, at the end of the mind, sorry, of course. Um, it's, 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 it's a book which anthropologists of religion have, have been using and, and reading and discussing over the, last, over the last years. And very interestingly, in his more recent uh, books, Michael has been exploring um, the lives and the subjectivities and the multiple identities of people who are on the move. People who live in between worlds, people who live in between continents, people who migrate from one condition to another. Why? Well, that's maybe due to many different reasons, but in any case, there's something to be explored there, and there's something there that tells us a lot about what it is to be human. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that it is about this research that he's been doing with migrants in the UK, in Denmark, and in other parts of the world, and of course with always Africa in, in the back of his, of his mind. Although I have to say that his first ethnographic work was not about Africa, it was about Australia and about, 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 about his native New Zealand. Uh, I think that your, your uh, master thesis was about Maori legends. 
uh, and legends and storytelling has always been one of his uh, preoccupations as well, of course. But I think that it is uh, about this uh, research on migration and movement and subjectivities and you know, the existential condition of the people on the move that he's going to be talking about today and tomorrow. So I will shut up, give him now the opportunity <laughs> to uh, tell us what he has to say for about an hour, and then I will be very happy to uh, ask him a few questions, or, or let you ask a few questions, and then invite you all to have a drink with him uh, at the Butlery uh, uh, at 6.30. So please, Michael, welcome. Um, thanks very much for that, that introduction. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, uh, Johnny Steinberg and uh, David Gildner for um, bringing me here to Oxford. Um, it's a place I've only visited twice before, a long time ago, and it's nice to have my distant memories of the place refreshed, just walking around and being guided so excellently by, by some of the graduate students here. I want to begin uh, with the paradox that although we writers and academics set great store by words, many of those whose lives we write about are far less concerned with representing their experience in the form of either personal stories or explanatory treatises. Just so stories will be preferred to long-winded accounts of the whys and wherefores of life events, and for those who are more entertained by make-believe stories, the highest value is placed on those that are action-packed and bear no direct resemblance to one's own immediate life. The question of our responsiveness to the people whose life worlds we are so curious and concerned about, how we do justice to their ways of life and their priorities when they are so very different from our own, has troubled anthropologists from the early 20th century when Malinowski asked, what kind of ethnographic magic can enable an anthropologist to evoke the real spirit of the natives, the true picture of tribal life? For isn't it true that our academic tropes, our key concepts, and our ways with words often function rather like Trobrian spells which Malinowski was astute enough to see as means of inducing effects, not on barren ground, stormy seas, or an unresponsive neighbor, but on the consciousness of the speller himself, a means of bolstering his confidence in what he was doing, focusing his mind, raising his hopes, and encouraging self-restraint and consumption. Malinowski's emphasis on language as a mode of action rather than as a countersign of thought presages Wittgenstein's proposition that one cannot guess how a word functions, one has to look at its use and learn from that. If, as Wittgenstein argued, the deed, the activity, is primary and does not receive its rationale or justification from any theory we may have of it, then the gap we sometimes perceive between words and deeds, episteme and techne, or expressive and instrumental functions is often illusory. As speech act theory shows us, language does things other than describe reality. It changes our experience of reality. And in that vein, um, I am deeply indebted to Gottfried Lienhardt, whose wonderful book, Divinity and Experience Among the Denka, um, makes that argument 
in an attempt to show that what we think of as magic, um, by contrast with our own ways of doing things which are literally informed by rationality, both share this same um, impulse to transform our experience of the world. In my talk today, I want to share some vignettes from my fieldwork that illustrate some of the practical entailments of avoiding speech. In some of these situations, and for some of the people I will mention, a culturally learned preference for economy in speaking is clearly present. In other situations, for these same people, the reasons for not speaking, or for speaking in rituals, <coughs> are biographical, or historical, or strategic though these multiple perspectives are present to different degrees in any given social situation, which is why interpretation and anthropology is always a matter of looking among multiple possibilities of interpretation for the one that proves to be most edifying. Not all anthropologists succumb to the obscurantist tendencies of academic culture, or do so all the time. And as I hope to show, though a person may choose silence over speech in one setting, he or she may be irrepressibly loquacious in another. So bearing in mind the importance of what Malinowski called context of situation, let me begin with Evans Pritchett's famously frank introduction to the newer, where he describes, not without humor, his frustrations in getting his informants to answer his questions. Who are you? A man. What is your name? Do you want to know my name? Yes. You want to know my name? Yes. You have come to visit me in my tent and I would like to know who you are. All right, I am Quoll. What is your name? My name is Pritchard. What is your father's name? My father's name is also Pritchard. No, that cannot be true. <laughs> you cannot have the same name as your father. This dialogue des Sourd continues until Quall grows weary of fending off the anthropologist's questions and demands some tobacco. <laughs> Evans Pritchard writes that even the most patient ethnographer would not be able to make headway against this kind of opposition. To quote him, one is just driven crazy by it. Indeed, after a few weeks of associating solely with Noah, one displays, if the pun be allowed, the most evident symptoms of neurosis. <coughs> Nonetheless, a clue to Qual's uncooperativeness is to be found two pages back in his monograph, when Evans Pritchard notes that it would probably have been difficult to do fieldwork among the Noah at any time. But, to quote him, at the period of my visit, they were unusually hostile for their recent defeat by government forces and the measures taken to ensure their final submission had occasioned deep resentment. In fact, between 1920 and 1930, the Royal Air Force regularly dropped incendiary bombs to spark bushfires and flush out newer warriors and machine gunned both newer and their cattle from the air. Quall's responses to Evans Pritchard's questions remind us not only that speech is a form of action, but that avoiding speech also has performative power, particularly when loose talk risks placing oneself and significant others 
in a vulnerable or perilous position. In the closing chapters of Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, the famous Afro-Caribbean psychiatrist and revolutionary recounts a European policeman's experience of torturing prisoners during the French-Algerian War for independence in the 1950s. An experience that had proved so dramatic, tra traumatic that this policeman needed psychiatric care. After expressing mystification as to why prisoners would endure hours of beating, waterboarding, and electrocution rather than talk, the policeman expresses the opinion that this obduracy was not fair on the torturers. <laughs> you might as well talk to a wall, he complains, a comment that recalls George, George Devereux's observation that human beings find it difficult to accept that the material world, and sometimes other people, are unresponsive to their overtures. The policeman is less outraged by the brutal consequences of his actions than by the uncooperative and recalcitrant attitude of his victims. If they behave like objects, he seems to be saying, they deserve to be kicked around. But the prisoner is a person who screams in pain and dies, and this torments the tormentor despite the political justifications he gives himself for just doing his job. And here's a quote from Fanon. To all the questions we asked that only say, sorry, this is from the policeman talking to Fanon. To all the questions we asked that only say, I don't know. Even when we asked them what their name was. If we asked them where they lived, they'd say, I don't know. So of course we have to go through with it. But they scream too much. At the beginning that made me laugh, but afterward I was a bit shaken. But above all, it's after the electricity that it becomes really too much. Mind you, would like to avoid that, but they don't make things easy for us. Now I've come so as to hear their screams even when I'm at home. So muteness is sometimes a weapon of the weak. I discovered this quite early on in the year my wife and I lived with an Aboriginal family in the rainforest of southeast Cape York, Australia. Like Evans Pritchard, my questions were met with averted eyes, stony silence, or the curt response, I don't know. Whether asking our hosts how we could improve our fishing skills, since we were largely living off the land, where we might pitch our tent, or why a man had to avoid his mother-in-law, the response was generally evasive. If a view was expressed, it was always conditional. Might be a good idea not to camp under those bloodwoods. Or, I don't know if I talk right way or wrong way. If I talk wrong way, well, might have to think different way. To some extent, this taciturnity and prevarication reflected people's traumatic history of relation with whites. Why open yourself up to the people who had stolen your land, reviled your beliefs, and could not be trusted? Yet this circumspective style of talking was just as evident within the camps, and it quickly became apparent to me that not voicing an opinion was a tactic for avoiding blame if your advice had disastrous consequences. 
And so we would sit for hours sometimes, waiting for someone to suggest we go fishing, or set off on a visit to another camp, as if it was better to do nothing than do something for which you could later be blamed. I should add, however, that the avoidance of talk is prescribed among in-laws, possibly because affines are at once strangers and potential allies. But here again, the repression of speech is a strategy for avoiding ambiguity and misunderstanding in fraught social relationships. When I began my fieldwork among the Karanku of Northeast Sierra Leone in 1969, I quickly discovered the value people placed on parsimonious speech. Taming the tongue was a primary metaphor for self-mastery, comparable to enduring pain and controlling one's emotions. Old men would show me their tongues, blistered by the many times they had bitten them, rather than blurt out some, some inappropriate or potentially incendiary remark. Adages I had heard as a child, silence is golden, least said, soonest mended, resonated with the Karanka view that untamed speech shows dissent, <coughs> sows dissent, while silence repairs relationships and reintegrates the world. It took me many months to learn that when neighbors called on me, talk was not required. Cola or a cup of tea might be offered before you sat down together in amicable silence. Not only were people uninterested in speculation for its own sake, they were extremely wary of any attempt to second guess a person's inner thoughts or feelings. Sociality demanded circumspection in speech, not uncontrolled self-expression. Whenever I tried to ascertain what a person thought about a particular event or another person, my interlocutors would declare, I am not inside them. I do not know what is in their belly, meaning mind. Thereby reminding me that social opacity was as much of a phenomenological issue for them as it is for us anthropologists. But despite her preoccupation with the hidden intentions of others and the ever-present danger of malice and witchcraft in everyday life, Karanko probably spend less time trying to penetrate the interior recesses of other people's minds than we do. And by we here I mean academics in particular, preferring to judge people in terms of how they act toward others irrespective of what is on their minds or in their hearts. Even an inveterate tattletale can learn to button his lip. Just because you think something or feel something strongly, you should weigh your words well and be ever mindful of the social repercussions of letting the world know what you are thinking or feeling. Let me try to capture this attitude in a single anecdote. During field work in 2007-2008, I accompanied a close friend, Sewa Koroma, on a visit to the grave of his best friend and cousin and namesake, who had died a year before, not long after graduating from Milton Margai Teachers College in Freetown. Sewa Balansima had been in a motorcycle accident and had died of complications from internal injuries. That afternoon, Sewa told me what this friendship had meant to him. We were the same age, we bore the same name, we went to the same school, and we were in the same class. We came from ruling houses and had the same code of conduct. 
When we came to Kabbalah for high school, we were always together. Every evening, strolling up and down the street in Yogamaya, even our girlfriends were sisters. Sewa hesitated as if struggling to find the right word. He was the quiet one, Sewa said at last, intelligent, perfect in every way. Sewa was suffering from a swollen throat. His eyes were sore, perhaps from the hamatan. Did I have any medicine that might help? There is no medicine for grief, I said. I have not been so tearful since my son died, Sewa said, alluding to the summer in London when his, birth, his wife gave birth prematurely. The baby survived only a few hours before his lungs failed. But it was not only these tragedies that oppressed Sewa. That morning he had learned that a Canadian NGO was planning to build its headquarters on the site where his friend was buried. No one had told the Canadians that the place was a graveyard and they had not bothered to find out. Sewa Balansama's grave was located under the great granite Inselberg of Albitaya and we later strolled past the house where he used to live and see his name still painted on the closed shutter of his room. How hard, I wondered, would it be for me to go back to the house at one mile where my first wife and I lived 38 years ago and find it gone? And would I be able to control my emotions as Sewa had tried to control his, pretending that his tears had been caused by a viral infection or dust in his eyes? Over the last few years, my research focus has moved from Sierra Leone to Sierra Leonean and more generally African immigrants in Europe. And my experience of getting to know some of these individuals has brought me back time and time again to the contrast between societies characterized by an economical attitude to speech, consumption, and emotional expression, and societies like ours in which loquacity, excess, and extravagance are tolerated, if not approved. <coughs> Emmanuel Mulamila grew up in eastern Uganda, where his Rwandan father had taken refuge in 1962, together with thousands of other Tutsi fleeing the Hutu revolution. When Idi Amin came to power in 1971, the eastern region resisted and harbored rebels against his regime. Although Emmanuel's father was apolitical, he was detained by Amin's secret police in 1979 and murdered when Emmanuel was eight. Rather than remain in eastern Uganda and suffer prejudice and persecution, Emmanuel's mother migrated with her children to her natal village in western Uganda, only to discover that they were not wanted there either. <coughs> this was partly because a woman is supposed to be looked after by her husband's people, even if her husband dies, and she has no strong claim on support from her patrikin. But it was also because the refugees were regarded as strangers and a burden on a family already suffering from the effects of one of the worst droughts in that region. So Emmanuel found himself persona non grata in a place where he did not speak the language. And though he was sent to school, he could not understand what people were saying and his plight was made worse by having to work in the fields before and after school and survive the school day by eating banana peels and sweet potato parings scavenged from the homes of his teachers. 
Though a victim of constant verbal abuse and bullying, Emmanuel gradually learned to turn the tables on his persecutors, first by buying them off, giving them articles of cutlery and clothing that the family had brought with them from Eastern Uganda, and then by distracting them by acting the clown and entertaining them with comical stories. Emmanuel referred to these stratagems as tricks and as building smoke. I learned to make people laugh, he told me. That is how I could survive most of the bullying. Whenever you make fun and people laugh, they'll share bites to eat. Not only is Emmanuel's story of surviving a harrowing childhood a compelling example of what one can do with words, it reminds us that our emergence as a species depended on a capacity for what George Steiner calls counterfactuality, a performative skill with words and actions that enables us to create an escape into alternative realities. To quote him, the uses of language for alternative for misconstruction, for illusion and play are the greatest of man's tools by far. For our hominid ancestors, he goes on, fiction was disguise. From those seeking out the same waterhole, the same sparse quarry, or meager sexual chance. To misinform, to utter less than the truth was, uh, sorry, less than the truth was to gain a vital edge of space or subsistence. In 2002, Emmanuel immigrated to Denmark to marry a Danish woman he had met in Uganda. His arrival coincided with the adoption by the recently elected liberal conservative government of immigration legislation that made it difficult for foreigners, as well as Danish citizens with immigration back immigrant backgrounds, to obtain family reunification with non-European spouses. It was against this background of xenophobia that Emmanuel experienced his first inklings of what it would mean to live in Denmark, married to a Dane. Despite being a graduate of a Ugandan university, acquiring fluency in Danish, which I never did, and completing a second degree at the Copenhagen Business School, all Emmanuel's attempts to find work came to nothing. His resourcefulness, his sense of humor, and his skill at building smoke were unavailing. When he dropped his Ugandan surname and adopted his wife's name as a ruse to get a job interview, matters were only complicated. The interviewers had expected a Danish woman, Emma uh, Olsen, and not an African man. And despite Emmanuel's attempts to explain the foreshortened version of his first name and the adoption of his wife's surname, he was accused of false pretenses and angrily dismissed. In 2014, after 12 fruitless years of looking for a job commensurate with his qualifications, Emmanuel decided to study for an international truck driving license. And when I visited Copenhagen that year, I took my wife to meet Emmanuel, his wife Nana, and their daughter Alice Maria in their Copenhagen apartment. After Emmanuel had prepared a dinner of salmon and salad, we sat at the kitchen table, drank to one another's health, and listened as Emmanuel told us about his life since I had seen him a year ago. Largely for my wife's sake, Emmanuel rehearsed some of the grueling childhood experiences he had once shared with me, harshly caned by teachers, bullied by older students, 
ostracized by his maternal kin. As a child, Emmanuel had learned to take beatings without flinching, to put on a brave face, to suffer in silence. He acquired the knack of turning himself to stone, as he put it, dissociating himself from his pain. As a migrant, he had also learned what to show and what to hide, how to feign and not give offense, his feelings hidden, his thoughts kept to himself. <coughs> to criticize such coping strategies in terms of a bourgeois code of sincerity, transparency, and honesty would be absurd, since for people without power, the skills of stealth, cunning, dissociation, two-facedness, and even trickery become the means of survival, techniques of building smoke, as Emmanuel put it, of provocative impotence, to use Sartre's phrase, or weapons of the weak, as James Scott has it. These are not symptomatic <coughs> of moral collapse or of a failure to get a life, since the powerless know only too well that those in power are masters of speaking with forked tongues. Although Emmanuel knew the risks of being open to strangers, he had nonetheless remained alert to every opportunity that came his way, though carefully assessing each one, lest it prove to be another trap, another dead end, another humiliation. When I asked Emmanuel how far he had come with acquiring an international truck driver's license, he said he had passed the Danish exams and would take the EU exam in a few days' time. He enjoyed being in command of a powerful truck seated high above the traffic, a master of his domain. And now that Alice Maria was growing up, it would not be a hardship if he was away from home for several days and nights at a time. There was one obstacle, however, that he was still struggling to get around. A psychologist who worked for the driving school had become curious about him. Sensing that he was far better educated than any of the other trainee drivers, and fluent in Danish despite being a foreigner, she accompanied him on test drives, prying into his life, and repeatedly asking him questions to which he was prepared to give only minimal answers. Given his, his experience of doors slammed in his face when it was discovered he was African, or overqualified for the job, or educated at an Islamic university, Emmanuel also feared that if the psychologist learned details of his childhood, she would diagnose him as suffering from PTSD or suspect him of planning a terrorist attack. <laughs> I kept asking myself, he said, what relevance did her questions have for driving a truck? Did she think I would load it up with explosives and destroy the Danish parliament? Or was it simply a friendly interest? Emmanuel's suspicion of the psychologist's uh, inordinate interest in his personal life echoed the preoccupations of other migrants I had come to know well in the course of my fieldwork in Europe. Like Emmanuel, Ibrahim Wadregu had endured extraordinary hardships as a child. He had grown up in a remote mossy village in the Sahel where his father was chief. Drought made it increasingly <coughs> difficult to grow crops or feed livestock and for nine months of the year, villagers were surviving on baobab leaves. Many people migrated south, but Ibrahim's father felt obliged to remain in the village that his ancestors had governed for hundreds of years. Though many of Ibrahim's age mates died of hunger and death was a constant presence in his life, he was able to get some basic schooling in a nearby village 
and dreamed of furthering his education and exploring the wider world. As a young man working in a what? Uh, Wagadougou Hotel, Ibrahim met a Dutch woman touring Burkina Faso and fell in love. And so he came to the Netherlands where he found work delivering mail and at the time I met him, washing dishes in the Royal Opera House. In 2011, I was staying with Ibrahim and his wife in their Amsterdam apartment and learning to see Europe through Ibrahim's eyes. One thing that struck me time and time again was his quiet outrage not only at how little most Europeans knew about village life in West Africa, but how rarely they reflected on the source of their own wealth and power. <coughs> I would like people here to appreciate and be proud of what they have, he told me, but also to be aware of the difficulties of being poor and of getting an education in countries like mine. I think people in Europe should be more satisfied with what they have and not always thinking how they can be better or get more. They waste too much. It is a consumer society. People consume, consume, consume. Instead of repairing things, they throw them away. That morning, we had breakfasted on brioche and pan au chocolat that Ibrahim had brought home from the Royal Opera House. The food items had passed their use-by date, and though they were still edible, they would ordinarily have been thrown away. There was no way we could eat everything Ibrahim had brought home, even though he could not bear to let it go to waste, and the back stairwell of his apartment was piled high with salvaged foodstuffs. This obsessive economizing did not surprise me, for my father was a child of the Great Depression, and as a child, um, I had become all too familiar with his habits of eating the leftovers from dinner, of hoarding paper bags, pieces of string, jam jars and tin cans in the belief that you never know when they might come in handy. <laughs> Not to mention his do-it-yourself philosophy realized in his ability to single-handedly build crystal sets, repair radios, make wooden toys and furniture, create compost for a garden and renovate our house. My conversations with Ibrahim helped me appreciate the connection between economizing on food, economizing on words, keeping one's feelings under control, and social viability. To eat more than one's fill, hog the conversation, or express one's emotions without inhibition were inimical to the ethos of reciprocity and sharing that lay at the heart of social life. Economizing was not simply a response to scarcity, it was a way of protecting one's social world from the divisive effects of unbridled passions and dissenting views. And while Ibrahim envied Europeans their freedom of speech, their independence of mind, and the value they placed on education, he missed the bonds of family and community that were central to the life he had known in Burkina Faso. In our conversations, he kept returning to his critique of Europeans as unable to curb their emotions, endure discomfort, or hold their tongues. One evening, Ibrahim and his wife took me to a Suriname restaurant where they had arranged to meet several friends. Over dinner, Ibrahim confided to me that it had taken him a long time to get used to eating out and he could still see no point in accompanying his wife to a coffee bar and spending six euros on a cup of coffee when they could have coffee at home. 
I told Ibrahim that Sierra Leonean friends in London often admitted to the same misgivings, preferring to spend money on food they could prepare at home rather than pay exorbitant prices in restaurants for food that was prepared behind the scenes by strangers. Ibrahim explained that he and his wife had an allotment outside the city where they grew vegetables in the summer. I don't trust the food you buy, he said. It doesn't taste like fresh food should. There must be many things you found difficult to get used to when you came to Amsterdam, I said. Ibrahim was only too happy to provide examples. I could not understand why Dutch people were always talking, he said, talking on the phone, gossiping, talking about themselves all the time. In Dutch, they call it having your heart on your tongue. And here I am, I said, talking too much and making it impossible for you to eat. Ibrahim smiled. In Bukina, it's not good to be too direct, his wife interjected from across the table. For example, when Ibrahim and I decided to get married, we wanted to avoid any difficulties with the immigration authorities. So instead of filing for a civil marriage, we explored the possibilities of a religious marriage. Ibrahim went to the imam of his mosque and said, I know of an African guy who is thinking of marrying a Dutch woman. And when Ibrahim visits my sister, she went on, um, her sister her, her was terminally ill at that stage with cancer, he sits with her, holding her hand. He doesn't get emotional with her and say everything that's on his mind. It's the same in Sierra Leone, I said, thinking of how long it took me to adjust to a form of sociality that required sitting with someone in silence rather than busily bearing one's soul, making small talk, or engaging in detailed conversations about abstract matters. Evelian said, Ibrahim will ask my friends, are you well? How is your family? And be amazed at all the personal details they provide in response. People are always prying into your life, Ibrahim said, always asking me what jobs I am doing, whether I like them, how much I earn. It is too much, really. Feeling somewhat embarrassed by my own barrage of questions, I fell silent, allowing the conversation to follow its own course and giving Ibrahim a chance to feed his daughter, Kafu, who was sitting in a high chair to his right. Later, however, when we were eating dessert, Ibrahim returned to the theme of excess. That is the problem with your society, he said. You want things straight away. You can't wait. You don't know the meaning of patience. You are like children. You expect endless pleasure and abundance. You do not know how to live with hardship. We Europeans cannot defer gratification, one of Evelyn's friends said in English. And the waste, Ibrahim said, the things people throw out. There is enough old furniture thrown out on the street to furnish a small village. He paused for a moment as if silenced by despair. There are many people who risk their lives to come here, he said. It is horrible because when they are in Africa, they think of Europe as El Dorado, but it's not. One of my first jobs in Amsterdam was at a restaurant like this. I was surprised to see people ordering food, then leaving half of it uneaten on their plates. There were things that they did not even touch and were thrown away. It was really, really difficult for me to see this. The first time I saw it, I could not believe my eyes. 
I wanted to cry because I knew how it was in my country. Many employees in the restaurants are migrants, like me. They know that if they serve too much food, much of it will be left on the plate. So they serve the minimum. They economize. What about the job you have now, I asked. It's the same problem. If the expiry date is today, you have to throw that food away. We are not even allowed to give it to the people who work there. Evillian suggested I ask my boss if it would be possible to donate this food to homeless people that when then we realized this might not be a good idea because in the past there had been problems with contaminated food. Honestly, it breaks my heart to see this waste. So without saying anything to my boss, I decided to take the food that had not been touched and bring it home. The sugar, tea, coffee, pastries that haven't been used, all this saves a lot of money and gives us things to eat. It's not just food, Evelian said. Ibrahim is intrigued by how quickly people divorce in Holland. He's shocked by how much people expect from a relationship, how little patience people have with one another. Rather than solve their problems together, they abandon the relationship. Everyone was quiet, even contrite but Ibrahim had not finished. <laughs> People might be well educated, he said, but they don't use their heads to make life more efficient, to make the most of what they have. <coughs> These refrains were echoed in London, where Sewa Koroma spoke about his struggles to make ends meet. What sustained Sewa in London were thoughts of home, as if evoking memories of his late father, his natal village, and his happy childhood could compensate for the state of eclipse that made it sometimes impossible for him to see any way ahead in London. He once cited a Koranku adage, if you move a chicken in the evening from one place to another, it will be agitated all night and only become settled when the new day dawns. After three years in London, Sewa confided, I am still not settled, so it must still be night. What unsettles you? I asked. When I worked in a restaurant, Sewa said, I hated to see so much food left uneaten and thrown away. I hated to see people stuffing food into their mouths and talking with their mouths full. At home we eat in silence out of respect for the food, which is always scarce and to be savoured. In England, he said, life is a choice between cell phones what we will wear to work today, which shoes, which shirt. At home, we sometimes did not even have a choice between rice and cassava, meat or fish, only between eating enough today or going without tomorrow. So what lessons might we draw from these vignettes for how we write anthropology? Clearly there is a cultural difference between societies of scarcity and societies of abundance. As Hubert Marcuse observed, the rise of mercantile capitalism in Europe produced a bourgeois culture focused on the conspicuous consumption of things and words, coupled with what he called an idealist cult of inwardness that generated a discourse disengaged from social life and practical matters which were seen as definitive of the lower orders. Whether we reference Claude Lévi-Strauss's fascination with the unconscious structures of the human mind, 
Michel Foucault's emphasis on discursive formations, or Eduardo Vivrieres de Castro's conflation of thought with being, we see how anthropology echoes bourgeois idealism in its assumption that conceptual thought can not only encompass, but transcend lived experience. In this logocentric view, loquacity becomes a sign of sophistication and authority, while silence becomes a mark of shame. I hope to have shown not only that economy and speech and explanation may be more compatible with sociality than volubility and verbosity, but that silence may, as the Coronco worldview suggests, be more therapeutic than talk. If, to quote Ishmael in Melville's Moby Dick, traditional societies tend not to place, quote, the conceit of attainable felicity in the intellect or the fancy, but in the wife, the heart, the bed, the table, the saddle, the fireside, the country, then it is because the greatest fulfillment in life emerges from one's relationship with others rather than oneself alone. Excessive verbalizing is symptomatic of a Western preoccupation with plumbing the depths of one's soul, expressing one's thoughts and talking things through, whether to appear authentic, protest an injustice, achieve a psychoanalytic cure, or resolve political conflict through dialogue. We're getting close to six, so I, I'm, I'm thinking I should, I should abbreviate the... No, we can talk. You can, you, can, you can go beyond six. Um, say, two minutes past six? <laughs> <laughs> Ten past six, yeah? Well, in the interest of Please. economy, of time, perhaps that's exactly what I should do. Um, You're leaving us speechless anyway, so you may as well continue and, 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 and illuminate us with I'm your just amazing... Try, I'm trying to improvise a kind of a, 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 a very quick ending here. Um, so I had something to say about people's reaction in Sierra Leone to the special court set up after the Civil War in which there was a lot of resistance to the idea of kind of talking things through um, and voicing one's trauma in a public arena. Um, so let me get to this, this particular paragraph and, and leave it at that. I want to return to the question with which I began my talk, the relationship between anthropological discourse and the discursive conventions of those with whom we work in the field. This isn't only a question of cultural <coughs> sensitivity in which we respect other people's vernacular idioms and modes of understanding. It involves a cultural critique in which we rethink our assumptions and discursive habits from the standpoint of the other asking why we give such weight to verbal cognitive thought and neglect the kinds of visual spatial thinking that are, after all, critical to social nas or social intelligence and social adroitness, an ability or skill in reading nonverbal cues, in responding to another person's facial expressions, in divining intentions, judging the moods and the needs of others without necessarily asking them how they feel or what they are thinking. 
Have academics focused on one mode of thinking because social engagement and sensitivity are secondary in their own lives? I hate to think so. And to what extent have we disparaged so-called primitive thought because its emphasis on social skillfulness and practical experience are forms of virtuosity that our tradition has come to devalue? Violence is a form of excess, writes E. Valentine Daniel in his book, Charred Lullabies. But loquacity is a form of excess too, that risks doing violence to the very experiences it wants to make sense of. This is why our language must be measured and tempered rather than used to fill silences or speak that which the sufferer cannot speak. And this is why we should be as mindful of what words express as what they do or cannot do, and perhaps take a leaf out of the unwritten book of the people with whom I have worked in West Africa, for whom dialogue is less important than diapraxis, creating conviviality by eating, working, dancing, and making music together, or simply sitting together in silence, acknowledging the experience of another human being with a simple gesture or a single word. Thank you very much.